Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We're going to take country. We're out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Welcome to the first of a two-part episode on Andrew Robertson. Andrew served in the Royal Australian Navy in World War II. Korea, Vietnam, and a number of other postings before he retired from the Navy as a rear admiral in 1982. He spoke with Angus Horton about his remarkable career in the Navy. Enjoy. So welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Angus Horton, and today I'm joined by Andrew Robertson. Andrew, thank you for speaking with me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Angus. Could you share your story with us, please? Yes, well, perhaps if I start off with a, a, a bit of a background. Uh, as everybody knows, three-quarters of the world's surface is covered by sea. If you look at history itself, all the great empires of the world were formed by sea power. You can start right back in the early days of Greece and Carthage and Rome, and you can go through the empires of Portugal, Spain, France, Holland, Britain, the United States of America, and all of that was done with sea power. What an awful lot of people don't fully realise is from the Allied point of view in World War I and World War II, they were maritime wars, because what they did was to gather the resources of the British Empire from every corner of the globe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, uh, South Africa, the British colonies all over the world, and bring them those resources to where they were required. In World War I, of course, it was very largely in Europe. And then, of course, the great might of the United States of America in 1917 in World War I it was to bring the resources of the United States to where they were required. This all required sea power. And initially, of course, in both wars, sea lanes had to be cleared of enemy raiders, they had to be cleared of minefields, they had eventually, of course, to be cleared, if possible, of submarines, aircraft and everything else that interfered with the bringing of those resources to where they were required. Then, of course... The great armies could be launched, and when they and the air forces, because while air forces are highly mobile, they cannot be dispatched overseas without all the wherewithal to get their fuel and their bombs and their food and their stores and everything else to be able to operate from distant airfields and the defence of those airfields themselves. So, as far as the West is concerned, by and large, the great requirement is maritime power to be able to control the environment around you, in the case of Australia, the approaches to Australia in particular, and to enable the resources that we may be able to produce 
to be dispatched overseas. Let's go back right to the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Britain and came to Australia at the tender age of two in three-cornered pants. And what was it like growing up during the Great Depression? The Great Depression was terrible. I don't think nowadays people have any idea of the poverty and the terrible strain people went through. I was a, my father was a soldier settler and we were well inland in Western Australia, about 250 miles inland from Perth. And uh, the uh, poor men who'd tried to get a job would come in their swags and call it our little shack, I suppose you'd call it, where we were trying to make a farm out of nothing and uh, do anything at all for a feed, chop wood or, or pluck chickens or do anything else. Uh, indeed, some of them were so emaciated. One, my mother kept a uh, tent at the back of the house and in it was a stretcher and one morning the poor fellow who'd arrived was dead in his bed. And people forget the terrible privation of the Great Depression and they look upon Australia now, a land of milk and honey, the definition of poverty is nothing like the definition of poverty of 80 years ago. So before we got to the Great Depression, we had the Great War. What was your family's association and history there? Well, my father in the Great War was in a Scots battalion. He was in the original landing at Mons in 1914, and he was wounded three times, and finally in the Battle of the Somme, and each time they patched him up and sent him back in. He then went into the Indian Army and uh, then after that he resigned and brought the family to Australia. And do you have any other military history in the family? I understand there's a great-grandfather who was an admiral in the British fleet. Yes, my great-grandfather was indeed. He was at the end of the, towards the end of the Napoleonic Wars in uh, things like the attack on San Sebastian and uh, of course, after that, against the Barbary pirates on the on the uh, north coast of Algeria, and and uh, matters of that ilk, and uh, uh, my father, of course, was army, and in World War Two, my brother was in the had left Australia just before the war to join the Royal Air Force, and he was in the Royal Air Force where unfortunately he he was uh, killed, and uh, I was in our navy. And I had a sister who was a nurse in the hospital, not a nurse, a VAD in the hospitals in the Middle East with the 9th Division. So if your dad was in the army, what was it that made you join the Navy? Well, Western Australia is and was much more exposed than the rest of Australia. Uh, and it was a very tiny population. And the Navy was very much more... Uh, understood and believed in in Western Australia because uh, the whole place depended entirely on on the oceans. Uh, when I was a little boy, of course, there was no... Uh, there was a railway across, which ran a couple of times a week. There was no road across the continent and it, the, any connection with the east of Australia was by sea because, of course, airways were not in operation in those days. And the great connections were, in fact, to Britain via the Indian Ocean, uh, either Suez or Cape Town, and to Singapore, and to uh, India. And uh, 
Yes, there was connection with the East Australia, but the, the big main routes were, in fact, those areas. So, Andrew, can we talk about your naval training? Where did you enlist? When did that happen? I uh, sat the exams in 1938 and, and was selected from Western Australia in, at the end of that year and joined the Naval College in Flinders Naval Depot in the south of Victoria in uh, January, or in beginning of February 1939, about, uh, oh, was it nine months before World War II broke out, when uh, naval officers were still wearing cocked hats and frock coats. And can you tell about your early days at the depot? What sort of training did you get up to? Well, the training at uh, Flinders, we were there for, in my case, about three and a half years. Normally it was four, but we were sent to sea early. Um, and it was a very, a very thorough training, a very physical training. We did a great deal of gymnastics. We did a great, we had to run everywhere and, of course, play a great number of games compulsorily. There was no voluntary uh, aspects to it. Our schooling took us up to what would now be called the high school certificate. And... Uh, the discipline was extremely strong, uh, quite unreasonable in many ways, quite brutal in some ways, uh, but we survived. What was your first uh, action posting? Um, when uh, things were getting extremely serious after Japan entered the war, and uh, we all knew, of course, then that uh, the, the uh, situation in the Pacific was dire because in December 1941, the American battle fleet had been destroyed in Pearl Harbor and the British battle fleet in, based in Singapore, which they'd rushed out, the battleship uh, Prince of Wales and the uh, battle cruiser HMS Repulse had been sunk. And indeed, after that, uh, the various British ships were sunk, along with our own, the Perth and so on in the uh, battles in the Dutch East Indies. It was a very interesting thing, really, because uh, the chief of the naval staff, soon a week or so after the disaster at uh, Pearl Harbor, came and addressed all the officers at Flinders Naval Depot and said, I'm going to tell you the truth of the situation because you're going to be hurled into this and you ought to know what's going on. And he told us that... The loss of the battleships Prince of Wales and Repulse and the destruction of the, the American battle fleet, which he outlined as what had been sunk, that we all knew, meant that uh, the, there was nothing whatever could save the Philippines or the Dutch East Indies or Singapore or Malaysia. Uh, and indeed, the, we, we faced the Japanese being able to come wherever they liked to, right down to New Guinea and the areas uh, throughout the Dutch East Indies, which is, of course, now Indonesia. He was absolutely correct in everything that he forecast because there was no naval power any longer could stand up. There was no way that Singapore could be supported and that the army there was doomed. And that was well known in naval circles from the loss of the Prince of Wales and Repulse. So your first ship was at the Australia? My first ship was HMS Australia. We were posted out from uh, Flinders Naval Depot and uh, we came to Sydney here 
and half of my term were going to the Canberra and half to the Australia, and we were waiting in Sydney to be told where we could go to join them, when, of course, the Canberra was sunk in the Battle of Savo Island in the Solomons. And so half my term were then dispatched by a merchant ship to join the Royal Navy ships, wherever they may be in the Indian Ocean or in the, in the Atlantic. Uh, the rest of us were very upset uh, because uh, we would be sent into the uh, Pacific, which would be very dull in comparison, because the further you went, the more palm trees you, you captured and the nice beaches you saw, but you got away from the bright lights and any possibility of going to dances or uh, enjoying the high life. So we were very envious of these fellows going off to Europe. So your action was really up in New Guinea in the Solomons and the New Hebrides. Can, can you speak of, of those particular times? Yes, well, we, we uh, were based, of course, in the Coral Sea in uh, Task Force 44. Uh, the commander of the task force was in the flagship of HMAS Australia and we had the HMAS Hobart, which are the only two of the modern cruisers out of the five still afloat. And we had uh, American destroyers usually, and we had, of course, support supply ships and so on. And we all knew, of course, that the uh, while we held the Coral Sea, uh, all would be well. The battle for the Coral Sea was being decided largely in the Solomons with the enormous battles between the American and the Japanese fleets. But we held the Coral Sea against any threat of the very, very powerful Japanese uh, fleet uh, coming through the straits on the northern side of the Coral Sea and being able to attack again as they did in the Battle of the Coral Sea. I never saw a newspaper correspondent or a war correspondent or anybody else, and I doubt if there were any in any of the other ships in the various things in which we uh, took part. So very little is uh, is shown in historical um, films or anything of that order of what was going on in the Solomons or after that in the gradual push north. Uh, but the Battle of the Coral Sea was absolutely vital to Australia. It really was the battle for Australia, that and the battles of the Solomons. The reason I say that is there could have been no New Guinea campaign, no Kokoda track, no drive forward in New Guinea at all if the Coral Sea had been a strategic defeat. If the second uh, American carrier, for instance, the Yorktown had been sunk, and then the whole of the east coast of Australia had been wide open to a massive attack by the Japanese fleet wherever they liked. Uh, and you would have perhaps had battleships, cruisers and destroyers as well as carriers, and there would have been great devastation, if not landings, in Australia because uh, if the Yorktown had sunk, the Japanese, the Americans only had two carriers uh, for the Battle of the of the uh, Midway, which was a crucial battle of the war, against perhaps six Japanese carriers, and it, the either battle would not have taken place or the chances of victory would have been very small. Andrew, at the time, 
Can you explain what you were actually doing on board and what your duties were? As midshipmen, well, we went to sea as cadet midshipmen and the greatest promotion of our lives was four months later when we put the proud white patches on our collars and we were now midshipmen. We'd had four months of, uh, of uh, training at sea. Our training every day we were, and every week we were given a part of the ship that we had to uh, study very, very closely, whether it was the magazines, the engine rooms, the boiler rooms, the turrets, in the uh, communications uh, arrangements, in the damage control of the ship, in uh, the aircraft and how it operated and how it was recovered and and uh, every possible aspect of the of the ship we had to write reports on it sketches and everything else and we had to learn how to control the torpedoes how to tra- control the guns how to control everything and we were of course did time down the boiler rooms and the engine rooms on the sprayers and the boiler rooms smashing up the boilers and everything else under, of course, the guidance of the people who really knew what was going on, the leading seamen, the leading stokers, the petty officers and the chief petty officers, and, of course, the officers. But the real knowledge was, of course, so much in the hands of, of the people who actually operated the machines. What was your action station on board the Aussie? I had an, a number of action stations. We were sometimes on the bridge, sometimes in the gunnery, control positions and mine usually was in what was called the transmitting station that is these days called the computer room where the giant computer which had about uh, 15 men around it was mechanical electrical and you wound in the speed of the ship the uh, course of the ship that came in automatically the uh, direction of the enemy the, the d- direction the enemy was going, the temperature, the temperature of the atmosphere, the temperature of the magazines, the, the uh, muzzle velocity of the guns and everything else. And out of these mechanical electrical computers it came the directions to the guns, where to point it, what elevation to be at. And uh, we were locked in down, down below in uh, under four inches of armour, uh, way down in the ship, uh, I think our chances of ever getting out were probably quite low. Um, the worst time I had there was we were in there for 24 hours uh, at action stations on uh, supporting one of the uh, operations. And, uh, of course, there was no air conditioning. The seawater temperature was 87 degrees Fahrenheit and the temperature down there was very high and we stripped off just a pair of pants, all of us, there were about 25 of us in there all told with the people who were connected to communicate to the guns and the bridge and everywhere else. And uh, when they opened the hatches, it was about, uh, I suppose you'd say, uh, five millimetres of sweat over the entire deck. I'm sure there are many, but are there any particular actions that you remember of an enemy engagement? I suppose the... While I was there, we we uh, had a lot of uh, alarms. Um, there was one particular one. We were in Milton Bay getting ready for the push, push north and uh, the Japanese had extremely good flying boats which flew very high at uh, about 30,000 feet. 
and uh, unless our fighters were up there, there was no possibility of intercepting them. And they, through very long distance reconnaissances, one came over Milne Bay, just as we had, of course, uh, hundreds of ships getting ready for the next operation to take photographs and report what was going on. And uh, we all, of course, that uh, slipped our anchors and were at action stations and the, all the warships got underway at high speed. And uh, there was no air attack followed, but the flying boat, of course, got away to go back to Rabaul and, and report what was going on. And then we had a report that there was a, a Spitfire squadron based at, at uh, Goodenough Island, and a Royal Australian Air Force. And there was a, one Spitfire happened to be up at that altitude test flying the aircraft. And he heard what was going on and he looked around and there was the flying boat and he shot it down before it could get the messages back to, to uh, Rabaul. Many years later, I was in the Western District of Victoria at a dinner party and I was recounting this tale to an RAAF fellow who said he'd been based at Goodenough Island. He said he was the pilot. The only other time when we were really doing a lot was the very big landing, which was one of the biggest landings of the war at that stage, on a place called Cape Gloucester on the... Uh, Dampervitia Strait in New Britain. Uh, this cape had to be taken where there were about five Japanese airfields uh, in order for the fleet to be able to go forth for the drive north to take the Admiralty Islands and then the Philippines and so on. And uh, we had a very big task force where uh, the two, our two Australian cruisers, destroyers and so on, and many American destroyers, lots of uh, big landing ships and, uh, and, and uh, an enormous number of aircraft which uh, came over with bombing raids and so on and we all bombarded and landed the 1st Marine Division uh, which uh, was, a, uh, was a really uh, crack United States Marine Division they were the people who'd done the great battles at Guadalcanal Island. Then they'd had a lovely holiday in Melbourne a year or so later where the girls looked after them. And uh, then we'd taken them back up to, up to uh, this uh, performance. You were in the Pacific for the rest of the war? No. I'd left, uh, I was transferred to the destroyer, the Warramunga, for a few months. That was a great experience to do destroyer time. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the ships were so full of people in those days. Uh, for instance, the Australia had 1,250 men when I was on board, and that's an awful lot of people. As midshipmen, we had quite good uh, living conditions on that very big ship because we had hammocks and uh, somewhere to uh, meet in the gun room and so on, and we were very well looked after. In the Warramunga, she was a brand-new destroyer, but... Uh, there, was no, there were so many people, there was nowhere for we midshipmen to sleep. Only had, they only had uh, two hammocks for three of us, so we had hot beds and there was nowhere to sling them, so we slept on top of an oil fuel tank. And uh, unfortunately, the stoker's job, whose job it was to come once every four hours and dip to see how much oil was in the tank, used to tread on us in the dark in, in oily boots, 
and uh, it was a very unpleasant experience. And can you explain for those that don't know, what is a hotbed? A hotbed is one where you get out and someone else gets in. <laughs> the bed is still warm. You rush up on the bridge and he rushes, helps me back to go to sleep if he, if he can bear the stench of the oil fuel and people flipping it on him. So where was Warramunga posted at that time? Well, we were on escort duties taking convoys up and down to the various places. We uh, were present for the standoff for the landing on Woodlark Island, which is one of the, uh, between, uh, I suppose, the northern tip of, the eastern tip of New Guinea and Rabaul, about perhaps uh, a quarter of the way or so. It was the most advanced uh, place we'd been at that stage. We landed the the, uh, Marines there, came back with a replacement of landing ships uh, full of equipment for them. And we, to our astonishment, we had air support from the airfield they'd already built. The American CBs, they were called, were construction battalions, CB. They called them CBs, which I always thought was a marvellous title. They were just brilliant. They used to work day and night. And uh, we were there, did that and, and we took convoys all over the place. And then we were with the Australia and the Hobart when the great battle of Kula Gulf took place and the battle of Columbangra in the Solomons. The Americans had had very heavy losses. Two cruisers had, had their brows blown off. One had been sunk. Uh, a couple of the destroyers were bashed up. Uh, the New Zealand cruiser Leander had been torpedoed and uh, we were rushed over from the Coral Sea to take their place because uh, surface forces were greatly depleted. Uh, we arrived at uh, the great naval base in the Sagun Channel in the New Hebrides, uh, which was a, a remarkable thing because as we entered harbour, we entered with the remnants of this bashed up cruiser squadron with the two dis- two cruisers with out their bows and the destroyers in a mess. And when we got in, we couldn't believe the number of damaged ships that were in there being repaired. They had floating docks and lots of air... I think it was three airfields. Tremendous noise of new aircraft we'd never seen before. Huge naval base. And uh, then we sailed uh, the next day, I think, having fueled... And we were relieved, and soon after we were relieved by American destroyers, the Hobart was torpedoed. So that meant that the ship, that the Australia, which I then joined a little after that again, was the last operational cruiser in the Royal Australian Navy, at least the last of the modern ones. There was also the Adelaide, but she was a World War I design. So, Andrew, you're continuing with your Pacific operations, but then you're posted abroad. Yes, we all were sent. We did did our exams uh, to, to, for sub-lieutenant. Then we were all sent to Britain by merchant ship to do courses, which you did all over uh, all over Britain in navigation, in uh, torpedo work, in anti-submarine work. We did, all did a flying course of about a week of intensive flying, and we did uh, submarine of course, all sorts of courses. Uh, then we were posted from there. Yeah, Britain was a very uh, 
exciting place to be. We were there for bombing uh, of London and so on. Not the not the Blitz, but later on, desultory bombing most nights. And then we were there for the very intensive uh, V1 flying bomb attacks, and they were quite exciting because when one of those uh, hit, it devastated almost an entire block. And uh, we had then the V2s, the big rockets. So our time there was uh, uh, very exciting. Then we had D-Day. We were in the reserve of, of officers for D-Day. I had a brother in the Royal Air Force who was near a station near where I was doing a course. So I flew with him a bit in over the channel and looking at all the mustering of the ships and all that sort of stuff. We used to have to deliver the sailing orders and we did uh, anti-parachute battalion. We had to a parachutist might have dropped on the on the landing zones. We did duties with them and all that sort of thing. And in the meantime, uh, at night we did air raid duties and in the daytime we tried to learn what we were supposed to be learning about gunnery. So Andrew, what was your actual posting? In, like were you up at Greenwich or where, where were you posted? We, we did our course. Greenwich was where most of the excitement took place. We also uh, were at a place called... Uh, near Brighton at a girls' school called Rodine College, one of the famous British girls' schools which had been overtaken by the Navy. We also did our flying course in Scotland, and most of our courses were in Portsmouth area, which was, of course, under attack a lot because it was one of the main centres for the invasion of France. You mentioned that you were doing some flying training. Why, why, if you're a naval officer, are you doing flying? All the college entrance through the Naval College, did flying courses. And from that, you either volunteered to become an aviator or you didn't. But you all had to have an understanding uh, of the air and what was involved. So we did uh, flying courses, starting off in Tiger Moss, and then we were in uh, Barracuda Dive Bombers, which, which wasn't, had a terrible reputation as the wings came off. Uh, so we, did, we were glad when we got out of that aeroplane. And we also flew in a torpedo bombing. We did torpedo runs and so on in swordfish. We, of course, weren't the pilots. We were in there learning how it all worked uh, in, in the place of the observer because most of them were two. Were two uh, uh, the crew was usually two, and so you were the number two in the crew. So your training in England comes to an end. What's your next posting? Well, then I was given instructions just simply to go to, to catch a certain train, to go to Gourick in Scotland. And, and not knowing where I was going, eventually we got to Naples and I was posted to HMS Kimberley. She wasn't there, so they eventually sent me to Toronto. She wasn't there and, and wasn't going to be there. And then I we took another transport to Portside, and uh, then I was quartered in Alexandria, in great splendour in the Union Club there for to start with, waiting for this destroyer. And the Navy thought that I was doing too well in a lovely club, and so they put me in a lighthouse. And I had to sleep up near the light, or more or less curled up round the damn thing. And <laughs> that brought me down to earth. And then she arrived, and I was in the, then in the Kimberley, 
for the latter year, months of World War over 1944 and then all of 45 till the surrender in May. And what was Kimberley? She was a K-class destroyer, one of only two left. All the rest of the squadron, I think there were eight in the squadron, had been sunk, including Lord Mountbatten's uh, HMS Kelly. And uh, Churchill, uh, with his great sense of history, went to the north of France invasion in one of the two survivors, HMS Kelvin, and he went to the south of France invasion in HMS Kimberley. But I wasn't, unfortunately, on board for that. I joined afterwards. Andrew, could we digress for a moment and go back to the Germans and the U-boats? From a naval perspective and your observation during the war, how close do you think it came to the U-boats really being a real problem? Well, they were a huge problem. They combined with the... uh, uh, the German uh, surface raiders, uh, not just the Bismarck and, and the uh, <clears throat> three pocket battleships, but also the heavy cruisers and so on, which used to come out of the Norway into the, the Denmark Straits and then down into the convoys if they could get there. Uh, but the uh, U-boats were the real enormous threat. And the Germans, of course, put enormous effort into building up the numbers with their uh, marvellous construction machine and their great submarine pens they built in all their U-boat bases where the U-boats could go inside these great concrete bunkers, which, as far as I know, were never penetrated, even though the Air Force used very big bombs to try and do so. I might be wrong there, but I think that's... uh, I looked at one after the war and it wasn't... It had a few dents in it, that's all. But anyway... I think it was about 2,700 or that order merchant ships were sunk during World War II, most of them by U-boats, some by aircraft, some by mines, and some by surface raiders, the merchant ships disguised as, uh, with uh, naval crews disguised as uh, merchant ships. The big problem was the U-boats. And, uh, of course, if they had won the Battle of the Atlantic and... I think Mr Churchill said that the one battle that really concerned him was the Battle of the Atlantic. If that was lost, then Britain would have had to surrender and with it the 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 British Empire and uh, come to some agreement with the Germans. And, of course, the might of America could not have been brought into Europe to uh, virtually finish the war. And so the, the U-boat peril was uh, was tremendous. They even had a squadron of them based, of U-boats, based in, uh, in Palembang and Jakarta. And one of them went to New Zealand. The U-82 potted an odd ship off our coast. So the war um, is coming to an end and you're sent back home. Yes, well, we, were, we, we did a lot of operations then in the Aegean and uh, we did the last... Surrender of the war was in the Aegean, and of course the Germans held it very strongly uh, right to the end. The islands of uh, Rhodes, uh, Kos and Leros and a lot of others, and there were a tremendous number of minefields, and uh, we operated against the Germans there. And then in the liberation of Greece, as the Germans uh, retreated north, and uh, we took over one of the various ports in, in Greece, and I spent uh, 
I thought I was captured one day with another officer. We were let go. Yeah, all was well. And did you actually go ashore to accept any surrenders from the Germans or, or to disarm them? I was in charge of a landing, a boarding party, and we had to intercept Greek kikes, which were the Germans were using to run arms into Greece and to connect with their, their forces in the Dodecanese. That was probably the most exciting part of my time there. We did odd bombardments and things, but but it was very exciting to board a kike and open the hatches and hope you didn't get shot by your own boarding party or the fellows who were underneath. So on VE Day, where were you and what can you remember? We took the surrender, the last surrender of World War II in the European theatre, and that was of a Major General Wagner who was the in charge of the, all the German forces in the AGN and Crete. That was a very interesting uh, interesting time. Well, the head of Greece of the, uh, came in, in the old battleship Averoff, which was a World War I battleship, coal-burning, and uh, we could see the smoke an hour or so before she arrived. And what was interesting about the surrender? Well... The surrender took place from a captured British gunboat which had been captured by a, a German platoon. Years later, many years later, when I was in London, I actually met the head of the German armed forces who was, in fact, the captain of that particular gunboat. And I had the only photograph taken of the surrender at that stage. So um, he was delighted to hear this and, and, and I sent him the photograph after I got back to Australia of him in his one and only naval command. He became the Inspector General of the whole German Armed Forces and he was in charge of the gunboat, a lieutenant in the Wehrmacht. Did you have any opportunity once the European campaign had wound down to be posted back to the Pacific? Yes, when, they, when it finished, uh, we, I was then the navigator for the last bit of, of the Kimberley and uh, I'd been the anti-submarine officer before that, which was quite interesting. Uh, we took the Kimberley back to Britain to pay off alongside her sister ship in Dartmouth. And then uh, almost immediately I was posted to a return to the Pacific for the rest of the war. We came in a transport ship, uh, unescorted, because of course the European end was quite safe. That was a miserable trip with 4,600 unhappy sailors of whom had been sunk several times and had had miserable wars being sent out from Britain to fight in the Pacific against the Japanese uh, when all their fell friends were being demobbed and getting good jobs. Uh, they were very, very unhappy men and they were stuffed into this small ship, as I say, 4,600 of them and that was the most miserable and Ghastly trip when 400 of them jumped overboard. But we picked them up. We were going non-stop from Britain to Sydney, which didn't please anybody. Uh, we stopped only to fuel with nobody allowed off in Colombo. But when we were halfway between Colombo and Australia, the uh, atom bomb was dropped. So we were diverted into uh, Western Australia, which was great, particularly for the two West Australian officers on board. Did you get some leave? Oh, just a couple few hours, just enough to get home. I was then uh, attached to the British Pacific Fleet, but they had so many officers and their casualties were not as high as expected, as had been the case at Normandy. 
I then applied to rejoin the RAN, who were very short of officers. And I was put, I was put in the uh, HMAS Bataan, which was a sister ship of the Warramunga, a uh, tribal class destroyer which had just recently commissioned. I was in her for a couple of years. So World War Two's over, and then here we are five years later, and there's another war on in Korea. Well, in between, we were sent up in the Bataan in the occupation of Japan. And we were on the Korean patrol there where we were stopping the illegal immigration from Korea into into Japan under MacArthur's overall command. And we were part of the British fleet, uh, which operated with the American fleet on these sort of tasks. Uh, that was very interesting to go and see the rubble of Hiroshima and the rubble of Nagasaki and Tokyo and so on. And... Uh, uh, it was a very difficult time because, very difficult indeed, because lots of people were being demobbed. And then, then you got uh, people who didn't really have any experience whatever joining and you had to try and train them up and keep the ship going. Very hard time it was. You were a Korean Navy man. Was the end of World War Two enough for you to, to basically change into Civvy Street or you, you, you were committed to see it well, through? Well, a tremendous number because all the reserve officers were leaving and quite a lot of the permanent officers wanted to leave and did too. I, th- I wanted to stay in the Navy, even though conditions were pretty terrible in some ways. Well, then I was sent from the Bataan to a minesweeper, HMS Swan, which was clearing in charge of the clearing of the Barrier Reef. We had a considerable force of minesweepers, I think about eight of them, based in Cairns. There was no naval authority there. We were clearing the minefields there, which was very exciting. Occasionally things went wrong and we terrible explosions and uh, all the crockery would be broken and we'd be thrown about a bit. We didn't get sunk. Then uh, I was put in as the captain of a small converted general purpose vessel, which was filled with batteries and generators uh, and made into a magnetic minesweeper and there were two of us converted to um, New Ireland, a place called Kavieng, right at the top of New Ireland, where we were, uh, we had to clean up the Japanese and the American magnetic mines. Uh, that was an experience and a half because our top speed was only six and a quarter knots. We were so low in the water that the engine room portholes all had to be blanked over. We were underwater as much as we were above water in storms and it took us a long time to get to uh, to New Britain. And uh, I was flown out of there in a Catalina to go and do a long gunnery course in Britain. So World War Two is over and your nation calls on you again, Andrew, to serve now in the Korean conflict. Yes, well, what, um, what happened roughly... Uh, I did the long gunnery course, which was 15 months of very intensive training in Britain. And then I was posted uh, back to Australia at the gunnery school down at uh, Flinders Naval Depot. And then the ship commissioned and we, uh, within about uh, two months, we were sent off to the Korean War, which was uh, very exciting with all this new equipment. We were the only ship up there, including all the American ships of our size, could uh, fire all our secondary armors as well as the main armors against the aircraft day or night. Um, that was a very interesting time. We had a few skirmishes, and we were on both coasts. I went up there a second time in the Anzac, 
the second time, Admiral uh, Captain Gattaker, who was a very famous uh, officer in our Navy, who, of course, had been the navigator of the battleship uh, Rodney when she sank the Bismarck, and he'd been the fleet operations officer in the Battle of Sabo Island and things like that. And he was very senior, so we were always in charge of the uh, American and British destroyers and frigates and things on the inshore on both coasts. We ranged right up to the Russian and Chinese borders. At uh, night, we took on the trains. They kept them in tunnels in the daylight because all the bridges had been destroyed because air power from the carriers on each coast and from the uh, huge United States Air Force in uh, South Korea and in Japan, uh, by daylight nothing moved. They couldn't. But at night they would have uh, great construction battalions which rushed out of the villages and put in place Brailer bridges. We knew the trains would start running about 11 o'clock at night. So we'd knock them off to stop the supplies to the huge Chinese army. It was all very frustrating and we could all see why MacArthur was so, uh, so uh, frustrated because he was sitting on great naval power. It was full of officers with great experience of amphibious warfare and he could have done what he'd done at Incheon before and landed anywhere he wanted to in North Korea and uh, cut off the forces which were confronting our army. The Chinese, of course, had about a million men there and uh, he couldn't use this power and he couldn't bomb the bases which they were being supported from in North China and he was very frustrated. You could see why he was frustrated because these tremendous battles were going on which the army had to face when all this, he had this enormous power he couldn't use. At the same time, a lot of us felt that when he was fired by Mr Truman that was correct because we would have been in a World War Three probably. So with career ending, where do you go to from there? Well, then well, then I was in the carrier Sydney. We went in the uh, Sydney to the coronation, took a squadron of aircraft, and they took part in the great flyover, and we took part in the fleet review at Spithead, where we were in the carrier line with a number of other carriers, the Canadians, and several British carriers. And we were right opposite the... Soviet cruiser Sverdlov, which arrived and with perfect uh, ship handling anchored exactly where she should have done. And she, of course, was the most modern, with the most modern technology that the Russians put enormous effort into their navy because they could see that they could not become a world power without maritime power. And uh, that was an eye-opener. In fact, a great friend of ours was be on exchange here in Australia was the liaison officer for the Russians and we spent a night with uh, the officers from the third loft the first time they'd been allowed off they weren't allowed off the ship because they'd be tainted by what went on in the capitalist world but can you share the experience of actually being there for Queen Elizabeth's coronation there was great excitement in Britain and Britain was still then very much a go-go nation, the problems which later arose with the huge strikes and so on hadn't really started. It, it was a very exciting time. We had to provide in the Sydney about a hundred odd men to line the route in the mall right next to the guards, uh, which was a quite a job to train them up because they had to stand still 
from 7.30 in the morning until 5.30 at night with one five-minute break and we had to dry them out so that they didn't suffer too much from that problem and we had to train them up as to how to do that and uh, they were uh, extremely good on the day in the rain and the, the cold and, and did their stuff. We were all quartered in the deep air raid shelter next in, on the Bakerloo line right under the, one of the great parks and uh, that was a coronation. That was the first part of Angus Horden speaking with Rear Admiral Andrew Robertson, AODSC. Volume 2 will be out tomorrow, so do check your podcast feed. We don't normally release episodes on a Wednesday, but in this case we have a special two-parter. You can also check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com, email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com, or like us on Facebook and Instagram at lifeonthelinepodcast, and follow us on Twitter at lotlpod. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>